The Pentagon releases the names of three American service members killed in a drone attack in Jordan. All three were from Georgia. Pentagon is blaming the attack on a militia backed by the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard, but the investigation continues. Today is Monday, January 29th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the effects of a Supreme Court decision on border security are playing out in Texas. At the same time, the way some Republican lawmakers and conservative leaders are talking about immigrants is becoming increasingly hostile. Also, a new book chronicles former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The extent to which the QAnon conspiracy cult was a driver of the Stop the Steal enterprise is just not fully appreciated. The authors of Find Me the Votes coming up. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Pentagon says it's investigating the deadly attack on an American military base in Jordan on Sunday that left three soldiers dead and 34 others wounded. Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh stopped short of blaming Iran for the drone strike, but emphasized that the U.S. is carefully weighing its response. We do know that Iran-backed militias are responsible for continued attacks on U.S. forces in the region. And as the president and the secretary have stated, we will not tolerate continued attacks on American forces, and we will take all necessary actions to defend U.S. military men and women forward deployed. And we will do so at a time and place of our choosing. Iran has denied responsibility for the attack. Sunday's drone strike marks a significant escalation of tensions in the Middle East conflict. The House Homeland Security Committee is set to take up articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports on the partisan fight over enforcement at the southern border. The 20-page House GOP resolution outlines two charges against Secretary Mayorkas, willfully refusing to comply with the law and breaching the public's trust. A DHS memo says the effort to oust the secretary is a distraction from vital national security priorities facing Congress. Mayorkas is part of bipartisan Senate talks about a bill to address the crisis at the border. If the House panel approves an impeachment resolution, House Speaker Mike Johnson says the full House could vote as soon as possible. But even if the House approves the charges, the Senate is unlikely to convict Mayorkas. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. The social media site, formerly known as Twitter, is blocking searches for Taylor Swift. The move is in response to fake, AI-generated pornographic images of the singer that went viral on the platform. NPR's Bobby Allen reports X is pledging to crack down on so-called deep fakes. Fake pornographic images of Taylor Swift created by using popular text-to-image generative AI tools amassed tens of millions of views on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. It appears as if the images were originally shared on the popular and controversial messaging service Telegram, which has almost no content moderation rules. In response, X has placed a blanket ban on most searches for Swift on the platform, which company officials say is a temporary measure. Swift is the most high-profile target yet, but researchers say abusive AI-generated images have proliferated online since the release of sophisticated artificial intelligence tools. Bobby Allen, NPR News. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 224 points, the Nasdaq up 172. 
This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A lawyer pushing for former President Donald Trump to be removed from the Massachusetts ballot is promising to appeal a key decision today. The case came before a single justice on the state's highest court. He denied the case to keep Trump off the ballot. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the request came from a group of eight voters. The voters had petitioned the State Ballot Law Commission, claiming Trump violated the Constitution when he engaged in the January 6th insurrection. The commission said it lacked jurisdiction over the matter, and today Supreme Judicial Court Justice Frank Gaziano agreed. He also noted that Trump is not yet the nominee, so the petition to keep him off the ballot comes too soon. Amy Carnavale, the chair of the state GOP, calls it the right decision. The decision as to who the nominee of the Republican Party should lie with the voters in Massachusetts. In his ruling, Justice Gaziano also said the U.S. Supreme Court, which is hearing a challenge of a Colorado ruling to keep Trump off the ballot there, could resolve the question in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The city of Boston will give $250,000 of its opioid settlement funds to families who've lost somebody to an overdose. The city is getting $6 million as part of a settlement with opioid distributors and manufacturers. Dr. Miriam Kumarami is the director of the Addiction Center at Boston Medical Center. She says families need this assistance, but there's also a desperate need for more addiction treatment. I would strongly urge that those funds be moved out as quickly as possible and that whatever roadblocks are holding up the distribution be removed as soon as possible. The Boston Public Health Commission says it will have a plan to release funds for recovery housing in the coming months. And chargers for all makes of electric vehicles are back on the mass turnpike. State transportation officials say they are now available at pike rest stops in Natick, Framingham, Charlton, and Lee. All electric vehicle drivers without a Tesla did not have a place to charge on the pike for several months. The state is hoping to get more chargers on the turnpike and other highways in the coming years. 36 degrees now, a cold wind overnight tonight. It should be about 20 degrees, but feel a lot chillier. Tomorrow, staying cloudy and cold, just about 27 at the highest. Wednesday, gray skies to start. We could see some sunshine by the afternoon, though, warming to about 40 degrees. 36 now in Boston at 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The fight between Texas and the federal government at the border is about more than just razor wire. On its face, the argument is over whether Border Patrol officials can cut down concertina wire that Texas put up. The Supreme Court says yes, the feds do have that authority. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he'll defy that order. But this is also a fight over who enforces immigration and how America talks about migrants. NPR immigration correspondent Jasmine Garst is with us. Hi there. Hi. There's been so much back and forth on the Texas-Mexico border. Can you just quickly bring us up to speed? Sure. So in 2021, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ramps up immigration enforcement. It's called Operation Lone Star. He deploys the National Guard, puts these floating buoys in the Rio Grande, razor wire on its banks. And this is often deadly. Migrants have died because of this. 
So the Biden administration tells Texas you have to allow Border Patrol to cut the wire. And Texas says no. This argument went up to the Supreme Court, who last week uh, ruled that Border Patrol can, in fact, intervene. The latest is that over the weekend, Texas doubled down and said no. Not only will we not cut the wire, we're going to put more in. Does Texas have any legal standing to do that after the Supreme Court ruled against them? Well, so this debate is about much more than wire. It's about who enforces immigration law and how. So the National Guard is ultimately part of the U.S. military, overseen by the U.S. president as commander in chief. But except in very specific situations where the president takes federal control, the National Guard in each state takes orders from its state governor. And Governor Greg Abbott has invoked something called the so-called invasion clause in the U.S. Constitution. Abbott says immigration is like a foreign public enemy invasion, which Biden is doing nothing about. And Texas has the right to defend itself. Those are such loaded words that we've also heard from presidential candidates. Invasion, foreign, public enemy. I mean, this is intense rhetoric. There's absolutely a very dehumanizing rhetoric. Uh, As we get deeper into the election year, it's been getting more vitriolic. Here's former President Donald Trump back in December. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world, they're coming into our country. He said this, poisoning the blood of America multiple times. And here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis when he was a candidate earlier in the campaign cycle talking about how he would deal with immigration. I don't see how you can just let them do that and and carve through a wall on sovereign U.S. territory with a backpack full of drugs. And so we we, of, of course you use deadly force. You know, what's striking about this is that it's not factual. You heard DeSantis talking about drug smuggling. NPR has done a lot of reporting about this. And pretty much all fentanyl found on the border has been smuggled through legal points of entry brought in by U.S. citizens. Some of this rhetoric is stuff that we heard starting in the Trump campaign of 2016 and continuing through his four years as president. Would you say what we're hearing today is different? There's this word I see thrown around a lot lately, which is unprecedented. This kind of talk is not unprecedented. We heard this during the last administration, and frankly, it can be traced back all the way to the 1830s, to anti-Irish movements, anti-Catholic, later anti-Italian. The list goes on and on, you know? And that leads to another point, which is that it's true. Apprehensions at the southwest border are at an all-time high, It's also true that the border didn't used to be policed in the same way. And according to the Cato Institute, in the last decade, the immigrant population has had the slowest growth since the 1960s. NPR's Jasmine Garst. Thank you. Thank you. Delivered into hell. That is how Tess Ingram of the UN Children's Fund, or UNICEF, describes the world newborn babies are meeting in Gaza. Ingram recently spent a week observing the conditions at two hospitals in Gaza. 
the care that people are able to receive is incredibly limited. The hospitals are so very crowded because there's just so many people in need, both from injuries from the war, but also from pre-existing conditions that need to continue to receive treatment. And then, of course, women giving birth and, and the care that their newborn babies need. UNICEF estimates some 20,000 babies have been born in Gaza since Israel began its offensive there in response to the October 7th Hamas attacks. Only about a third of the territory's hospitals are still partially functioning, and Ingram says pregnant women have trouble accessing even the most basic medical services. I spoke to, to one woman, her name was Mashael, and she was living in the middle area of Gaza. And when her house was, was hit, her husband was buried under the rubble for several days and her baby stopped moving um, inside of her. And she said that she wasn't able to get a scan or, or any sort of assessment of, of the baby's condition. When I met her, it had been a month after that terrible incident. And she confirmed her husband was, was fortunately rescued and, and he was OK, but she was sure that their baby was, was dead and she was waiting for, for medical care. So these are the sorts of things that, that women are experiencing even before they get to a hospital. And then once they're there, for example, anaesthetic is not something that, that's easily available, let alone um, other more usual medications that, that women might receive. And I'm sorry, the woman you just described, you said her husband was ultimately rescued, but but what about the baby? So she was waiting um, when I met her at the Emirati hospital to see a doctor, but the baby hadn't moved in about a month. And she said that she was sure that the baby was dead. And we spoke for a long time and, and she was obviously distraught by the whole situation. It was her second pregnancy. But she said to me, you know, I think it's best that a baby isn't born into this nightmare. It was probably meant to be, which was just heartbreaking. For those who are able to make it to a hospital and give birth there in Gaza, what happens afterward? I mean, how long, for example, are they able to stay in the hospital after the birth? Not long at all. So at the moment, because of the sheer you know, lack of staff compared to the enormous needs, women are, are having caesareans and then getting... Uh, a short amount of time, maybe an hour or two in a bed before being put in a chair because they need that bed for somebody else and then being discharged within about three hours unless there is there's some kind of urgent need for them to, to stay in the hospital. So mothers are, are leaving hours after having a, a serious caesarean operation with a newborn baby back to the streets in many cases. We're talking about displaced women, um, returning to makeshift shelters of, of tarpaulins and, and blanket, blankets on the streets of Gaza where they not only are at threat because of the bombardments, but they also don't have basic things like clean water or food or even clothes for the baby. I met one mother who was taking her newborn baby back to their tent and the baby didn't have any clothes. We know that nutrition and water are a problem. The WHO says that more than 90% of Gaza is facing crisis levels of hunger. What does that mean for breastfeeding mothers, for for newborns and and small babies? Yeah, it's a a really good question. And it's it's something that UNICEF is is trying to prevent and, and to respond to. 
Um, you can imagine that as a, as a pregnant woman, you want to make sure that you're eating properly to keep yourself healthy, but also to make sure that the baby is healthy. And so many of the pregnant women that I met and, and I spoke to, were, that was their greatest concern, was ensuring that they had enough of those nutrients to ensure a healthy pregnancy. But food is incredibly limited. And, and most people at the moment are remi- relying on very basic things like bread or um, tins of of like canned vegetables. So mums were concerned about that. And UNICEF is is there in Gaza trying to to help them. We're providing um, micronutrient supplements, uh, things like iron and folate to try and keep them healthy. And then for newborn babies, we're providing things like um, ready-to-use infant formula that can be used by mums who aren't able to breastfeed because maybe their nutrition is low or or they've been traumatised by what they've been through. And so they can use this formula that doesn't have to be mixed with, with water because of the concerns of safe water. So these are some of the things that we're trying to do. But the amount of aid that's been able to get in is just not the same as the need. And so we need to be able to get more aid in to do a better job of, of responding to the needs of, of pregnant women and children in Gaza. We've learned in recent days that several nations, including the United States, have suspended funding to one of the key United Nations agencies involved in providing aid to people in Gaza. That's the agency known as UNRWA. And that decision came after Israel presented evidence alleging that a dozen UNRWA employees were involved in the October 7th attacks. How much is that development harming efforts to help infants and new mothers in Gaza? The situation was already um, at breaking point. When I was in, in Gaza, I could just see just how exhausted people are by more than 100 days of, of war and nothing justifies the, the horrific events on, on the 7th of October. And these are extremely serious uh, allegations which are being investigated. But ultimately, I think what we need to keep in front of mind is what happens to the children of Gaza when they're already at this breaking point when the major UN agency in Gaza is not able to to fully function. So I think that's the thing that that we at UNICEF are thinking about at the moment and making sure that the needs of the children in Gaza can continue to be met. That's Tess Ingram with UNICEF. Tess, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Dow rose six-tenths of a percent today. S&P was up three-quarters, and the Nasdaq rose one and a tenth of a percent. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates to help address the affordable housing crisis. She says since the Fed began steadily increasing the federal funds rate two years ago, mortgage rates have reached a 20-year high. Speaking on CNN, she says that makes it harder for people looking to buy a home and increases costs for renters, too. 
because it means that fewer people are willing to invest in building new housing and building new apartment buildings, and that keeps rents high. She says the affordability crisis disproportionately affects people of color. Warren sent a letter to the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell expressing her concerns. The forecast is coming up. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Looks as if the clouds are going to spend more time in these parts. Tonight should be overcast, windy and cold, about 20 degrees at the lowest. Tomorrow should rise to the mid-20s with gray skies for the bulk of the day. Wednesday, the sun should finally move in and temperatures should move up about 40 degrees for a high by midweek. 36 now in Boston. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A group calling itself the Islamic Resistance in Iraq has taken responsibility for a drone attack that killed three U.S. service members on a base in Jordan near the Syrian border. The same group has claimed responsibility for most of the attacks on the U.S. military in Iraq and Syria since the war in Gaza began three months ago. To talk more about this group, NPR's Jane Araf is with us from Amman, Jordan. Hi, Jane. Hi, Ari. What is the Islamic resistance in Iraq, and and who are they resisting? Well, the second part of that question is a lot easier to answer than the first part. Their stated goal is to attack U.S. and Israeli targets, to drive U.S. forces out of Iraq and Syria, and to support the militant Palestinian group Hamas in the war in Gaza. Essentially, as regarding what it is, it's a coalition of groups. It's not new, but kind of rebranded, all with the same purpose, and almost all believed to be funded, armed, and in some cases directed by Iran. Iran denies this, saying the militias are autonomous. Can you tell us about some of those groups that make up this collective? Yeah, they generally don't disclose which militias are part of it, but one of the biggest, Katab Hezbollah, Hezbollah Brigades, made clear recently that it was involved in attacks claimed by the resistance. The U.S. in November targeted Hezbollah headquarters near Baghdad in retaliation, an attack that's prompted the Iraqi government to ask U.S. forces to leave the country. And worth noting, there's some history there. The founder of Katab Hezbollah was an Iraqi militia leader known as Abu Mahdi al-Mahandas. He was also a senior Iraqi government security figure. The U.S. killed him in a drone strike along with Iranian General Qasem Soleimani four years ago in Baghdad, which is even more reason for the group's determination to drive out U.S. forces. Tell us more about the origins of these groups and where they come from. Well, we really have to go back to the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 and in getting rid of dictator Saddam Hussein and disbanding all security forces, all Iraqi security forces, 
The U.S. paved the way with a security vacuum for the rise of al-Qaeda, the militant Sunni group, and Iran-backed militias that stepped in to protect Iraqi Shias and fill that gap. Iraq has had been an enemy of Iran, but after 2003, Iraqi political, religious, and militia leaders in exile in Iran were free to come back. And they did. Under the political system set up by the U.S., the prime minister has traditionally been Shia, and many of them are backed by Iran. So fast forward to 2014 when ISIS captured parts of Iraq and Syria, and the Shia militias were essential to fighting them. But when ISIS was defeated in Syria in 2019 with the help of the U.S., the militias stayed. And now a lot of them are officially part of Iraqi security forces. That seems like an unusual arrangement. Practically speaking, what does it mean? Well, it is as odd as it sounds, particularly when it comes to the U.S. Iraq is officially an ally of the U.S., which was responsible for a lot of the military training of Iraqi forces. The two countries fight ISIS together still. But inside the Iraqi security forces, the government and on the government payroll are militia brigades that were incorporated into official forces in 2019. So officially, Ari, all security forces answer to the commander in chief, Iraq's prime minister. But in reality, some of the most powerful groups answer more to Iran. NPR's Jane Araf, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. It's been one week since a major storm hit San Diego, causing flash flooding that inundated homes and swept cars off the streets. From member station KPBS, Andrew Bowen reports the disaster has highlighted how climate change is hitting low-income communities of color the hardest. Monica Garcia rummages through piles of soiled belongings that she and her neighbors have taken out of their homes and placed on the sidewalk. There's closet drawers, headboards. There's actually all the clothing hangers with clothes. Last Monday was San Diego's rainiest day in January since 1850. Some areas got three inches in just a few hours. The floods came fast, overwhelming the city's stormwater infrastructure. Garcia's 90-year-old mother had to be evacuated to the neighbor's roof. This house has been in the family for 45 years. It's been a source of stability and safety for all the kids and grandkids. And when they had financial troubles that they couldn't pay rent, this was the home where they can come to get back on their feet. And now we have nothing because we have no flood insurance and because we've had so many hardships and and health issues as well. This is a total loss. Garcia's neighborhood, just southeast of downtown, is predominantly Latino and low-income. Generations ago, racist housing policies kept people of color out of San Diego's white neighborhoods. A century later, that segregation persists. The infrastructure in these older communities have long needed investment. Julie Corrales is an organizer with the Environmental Health Coalition. The San Diego nonprofit recently secured $22 million from the state of California to help vulnerable communities prepare for climate change. But the focus has been on extreme heat. Corrales admits the risk of flooding in sunny San Diego hadn't been on their radar. We're going to experience unpredictable weather and these types of rains, and we haven't been focusing on that. So I think now we're thinking, okay, we need to start building around that. How do we urgently reinforce the infrastructure. I don't think that we realized urgency before. 
City officials said the rainfall was so intense it would have overwhelmed even the strongest stormwater system. And San Diego's was already underfunded by $1.6 billion. I think this is a great example of why we have to be equitable in our investment in climate resiliency. Sean Ilo Rivera is the San Diego City Council president. He says historic budget inequities have made infrastructure shortfalls especially bad in low-income communities. I think that the council that we have now, in partnership with our mayor, has been very honest about the needs of the system. And that means providing additional resources to communities that deserve them because they were left out of the equation for so, so long. Climate change is going to play out in ways that we don't fully know at this point. Gregory Jenkins is a professor of meteorology and atmospheric science at Penn State University. He says when disaster strikes, low-income households can be permanently displaced. You don't know what that does to the fabric and structure of that neighborhood in terms of relationships or, you know, how someone's job is now 30 miles away, or we don't know all those things. So there are narratives that are happening at the human scale that aren't really reported. Back on Monica Garcia's street, volunteers at a taco stand are preparing lunch for residents. Garcia says she's touched by the support, but there's more they need. So that's why I'm asking also the federal government to give us the aid. You have money for wars. You have money to help other countries, and we're struggling as well. Garcia doesn't know what comes next for her family. The morning after the storm, a real estate agent came knocking with an offer to buy the home for cash. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Bowen in San Diego. This is NPR News. Thank you for listening to WBUR on this Monday afternoon. Coming up, an engineer in Huntsville, Alabama, is suing the defense contractor Parsons Corporation for discrimination. He says he was fired for speaking Hindi, his native language, at work. Celtics host the New Orleans Pelicans tonight at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. Celtics have won seven of their last ten games. And former Red Sox manager Jimmy Williams has died. Williams led the team from 1997 to 2001. He was named American League Manager of the Year in 1999. That was the year the Sox made it to the American League Championship Series. Red Sox call Williams a true staple and leader of the team. Jimmy Williams was 80 years old. This is 90.9 WBUR forecast overnight tonight. Look for more clouds, temperatures down around 20 degrees. Then for tomorrow, more clouds with highs just about 27 degrees. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org legacy. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House says there will be a response to the drone strike in Jordan that killed three American soldiers and injured dozens of others over the weekend. 
The U.S. blames an Iranian-backed militia group that was attacking U.S. forces for their support of Israel after the surprise attack by Hamas nearly four months ago. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the president is weighing options with his security team but will respond appropriately when the time comes. The counter-ISIS mission is separate and distinct. Indeed, it has been long-standing and unrelated to our efforts to support Israel and to prevent a wider conflict in the region. We do not seek another war. We do not seek to escalate. But we will absolutely do what is required to protect ourselves, to continue that mission, and to respond appropriately to these attacks. It appears the hostile drone may have been mistaken for an American one in the same area and therefore wasn't shot down. A group of Democratic lawmakers is speaking out against an effort by House Republicans to exclude unauthorized migrants from a key census count. Here's NPR's Hansi Luong. A funding bill by House Republicans would effectively ban the Census Bureau from including unauthorized immigrants in census numbers that the 14th Amendment says must include the, quote, whole number of persons in each state. And tally is used to determine each state's share of congressional seats and electoral college votes. Now in a letter to the leaders of Congress that cites NPR's reporting, Representative Grace Meng of New York and Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii are leading four dozen fellow Democrats in calling for that Republican proposal to be dropped. Last week, Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee led 20 fellow Republicans in introducing a similar proposal. Their bill calls for green card holders to also be left out of that key census tally. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says an overflow shelter in Boston could open to migrants as soon as Wednesday. The state has chosen a recreational center in Roxbury for the shelter. The space will temporarily house the region's ballooning homeless and migrant populations. As WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, the mayor says the move to convert the space is concerning to her and to residents. Mayor Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston that community feedback to convert the Melnia ACAS recreational complex into an overflow shelter was clear. For the first community where this is being proposed to be Roxbury, a community that over so many decades has faced disinvestment, redlining, disproportionate outcomes, it's very painful and it's painfully familiar, I think is what we heard most of all from residents However, Wu says the rec center is under the jurisdiction of the state. She added this moment feels like an inflection point, one where the city is already under strain. A quarter of all spots within city shelters are now filled by newly arrived migrants. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Congressman Seth Moulton is warning the U.S. to show restraint after a drone attack in Jordan. The attack over the weekend killed three American military members and wounded 34 others. The White House says the attack was carried out by militant groups backed by Iran. Moulton told CNN this afternoon that President Biden is working hard to avoid entering into a broader war in the Middle East. We need to send decisive messages to Iran that this kind of militant behavior is not going to be acceptable. Uh, The Biden administration will do that. But to say that we should never have any diplomacy, especially with the elements in the Middle East that are allied to our interests, uh, that's ridiculous. All three soldiers who were killed were from Georgia. A Millis man accused of threatening to bomb a synagogue and kill members of the Jewish community is being held in custody. The 59-year-old suspect appeared in federal court this afternoon. Federal prosecutors say he left a threatening voicemail to a synagogue in Attleboro. They say he also threatened another Jewish organization. 36 degrees in Boston under cloudy skies. The forecast is coming up.
WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Got a cold wind moving in tonight. Should be about 20 degrees, but feeling a lot chillier. Tomorrow, clouds should stay. Should be cold for a high, just 27 degrees tomorrow. Wednesday, gray skies to start. Then we may see some sunshine by the afternoon, warming to about 40. Again, 36 and now in Boston at 436. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. When writers decide to take on a book project about someone in the news, about developments still unfolding, they take on a risk that by the time their book gets through edits and onto our bookstore shelves, it may have been overtaken by events. Exhibit A is the new book, Find Me the Votes. It is about Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and about the Georgia prosecutor who decided to indict him over those efforts. That prosecutor is Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and her personal life is currently making as many headlines as the case she's bringing. Find Me the Votes is by journalists Michael Isakoff and Daniel Clydman. They're in our New York bureau. Welcome to you both. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so to summarize where things stand. We have lawyers for Trump moving to disqualify Fonnie Willis from this case on the grounds they say that she created a conflict of interest by hiring a man with whom she's romantically involved to help her prosecute the case. I want to note she has not confirmed or denied that relationship. Have either of you reached out to her for comment? We have talked to uh, people close to her. And um, look, this is a key moment. Uh, She is going to be responding for the first time later this week. Uh, We anticipate there could be quite a vigorous response and pushback against uh, at least some of what has been alleged. I mean, the man in question is named Nathan Wade. He shows up on the very first page of your book. The second sentence reads, and I'll quote, It was mid-August 2023, and Fonnie Willis was riding in a black SUV with Nathan Wade, the special counsel in charge of her office's investigation into Donald Trump. Um, Daniel, for the record, did anything give you pause as you reported on their interactions? No, absolutely not. And interestingly, you know, we've spoken to people close to Fonnie Willis and people uh, on her team, and they were shocked by the revelations. They had no idea. We asked all sorts of questions about Nathan Wade and a lot of other members of the team. Why did you choose this person? Why did you choose that person? There have been some questions about why she chose Nathan Wade for a uh, complex racketeering conspiracy case against the president of the United States because that was not his experience um, as a lawyer. I guess it's no one's experience it, as that's a lawyer. True. This that, is uncharted is waters. But uh, just one more on this before we turn to the ground that you covered in the book. If Fonnie Willis is forced to recuse herself, and I want to stress again, that's by no means a given, but if it were to come to pass, how damaging would it be? Could the case against Trump and his co-defendants, could it go on? 
it would be grievously damaged. I mean, look, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and the team have been immersed in this case and the details of this case for close to two years now. Um, if a whole new team had to come in and start from scratch, not being familiar with what the witness testimony to, and what the evidence is, um, it would set back this case many, many months, if not you know, more than that, um, and certainly beyond the uh, November election. But one of the things we do report in the book is that Fonnie Willis had trouble finding anybody to take this job because of the threats that were so permeating in Georgia with anybody who touched it. She reached out to a former governor of Georgia, Roy Barnes, who turned her down saying, and this is quoted in our book, hypothetically speaking, do you want to have a bodyguard follow you around for the rest of your life? In fact, the night of the indictment, the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office had picked up a possible assassination threat on a MAGA website. The best time to shoot her is when she's leaving the building. And that led to this extraordinary scene after her midnight indictment. She goes back to her office. She gets out of her black business suit and pearls, puts on uh, sweatpants and a T-shirt and a baseball cap, and a body double wearing a Kevlar vest, a bulletproof vest, puts on the business suit or something resembling the business suit that Fonnie Willis was wearing and then drives out as a decoy while Fonnie Willis is smuggled out of the office through a back door. I mean, it's an astonishing moment, but it gives you a sense of just how dangerous these threats were and how alarming they were to everybody involved. So let me focus this on the central fact, Trump's efforts to overturn results in Georgia, which of course have been widely documented, extensively, exhaustively documented, and we all watch them play out in real time in public, um, including the, the famous phone call, Trump to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, telling him, find the votes so we can win the state. What surprised you to learn that you didn't already know, having followed this closely as we all did in real time? Michael Iskoff. Georgia was ground zero for what was the most anti-democratic plot in American history. It was the state where Trump's pressure campaign was the most furious, the most intense. He was calling not just Raffensperger, he was calling the governor, the attorney general, state legislators, an online investigator for the state secretary of state's office. And what we discovered is at the same time, Trump is talking to these eccentric lawyers, Lynn Wood, a full-blown QAnon adherent, uh, Sidney Powell, who's pushing these ridiculous theories about secret algorithms planted by Venezuelan socialists. He's egging them on. He's. We have tape of Trump calling these people down in Georgia, in Atlanta, and the nonsense that they were giving to him, he was then using to pressure those Georgia officials. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the full scope of what went on in Georgia is far greater and, and in some ways both more sinister and crazier than anybody imagined. Well, this prompts the thing I wanted to ask, which is, as you document, Trump's 
attempts to stay in power failed in Georgia in large part because elected office holders from his own party resisted. That's absolutely right. A- a- absolutely. Will, is... is the resistance strong enough for that to happen again? <laughs> well, that is a good question. But it is worth noting, as, as we do in the book, that there was like an iron wall of resistance among the senior Republican office holders in Georgia. From the governor uh, down. From Brian the Kemp. governor down. And there are unheralded heroes to this story as well. Mary Louise, can I, can I make a, a kind of a larger point that I think goes to your question? Sure. You know, we, we've always been asking ourselves, why haven't more people stood up to Donald Trump the way this iron wall in Georgia did? And the reality is, is that over and over again, members of his own party uh, and others don't stand up to him. I think a big part of the reason is is the threats. Uh, and we look at the consequences to the Brad Raffensburgers and, and other Republican office holders in Georgia, but more than the elected officials, more than the principals, it's their families. They were all getting horrific threats as well. Brad Raffensperger's wife, Trisha Raffensperger, got the most unbelievably horrible sexualized threats of violence. And you see this over and over again, not just the elected officials, but their families. And I have heard kind of off the record from Republicans saying, you know, we're worried about our own families. And that's part of the reason that we don't uh, speak up. Daniel Clydman and Michael Isikoff are the co-authors of Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election. Thanks to you both. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. An engineer in Huntsville, Alabama, is suing a major defense contractor, arguing he was fired after speaking his native Hindi language on the job. His lawsuit has drawn the support of a high-powered former federal prosecutor, as NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Anil Varshney worked for decades as a systems engineer in the missile defense industry, until one day when he answered a video phone call from his dying brother-in-law in India. And we talked in Hindi, my native language, for less than two minutes. And next thing I know that I was fired. The defense contractor, Parsons Corporation, had a security guard escort him out of the building. Oh, it was the most embarrassing time of my life. I said after 22 years of dedicated, loyal work for this missile, and I was so proud of working here. Varshney, who is 78, has filed a federal lawsuit against Parsons and the U.S. Missile Defense Agency alleging discrimination based on race, color, national origin, and age. He says there had been a pattern of mistreatment that singled him out because of his nationality. I was called the thing. Uh, They would interrupt me like, what I say doesn't mean too much. So these kinds of behavior, you know, you finally become numb to them. Varshney is a naturalized U.S. citizen and raised his family in Huntsville, the North Alabama city, as a hub for the defense and space industries. He says despite the work environment, he never filed a formal complaint with the Parsons Corporation, worried that he could be labeled a problem employee. The Virginia-based firm says that's an issue, that Varshney's allegations of discrimination had never been raised internally and are unsubstantiated. 
Through a spokesman, company representatives declined to be interviewed for this story, providing only a written statement. It says Varshney's termination had nothing to do with his national origin, race, or age, but that he was fired for using a camera on his cell phone at a classified work site a security violation. Varshney says white colleagues were never punished for similar behaviors and believes he was unfairly targeted. Former New York U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara agrees. He was discriminated against because of who he was, where he came from, and how he spoke. Bharara, now in private practice, says this is not typically the kind of case he would take on, but that he was inspired by Varshney's story, one similar to his own family's, of immigrating from India to make a better life. I was moved by his contributions to the country, and I was horrified by the way that he appears to have been treated. I think that Mr. Varshney has shown himself to be as patriotic and American as anybody who was born in this country, working in the service of the defense of this country. And I think it's very, very unfortunate that he has had to suffer what he's had to suffer, given that track record and background. And Neil Varshney says he's not been able to find defense work since being fired by Parsons. He says the company has effectively blackballed him from his career. I, I want my name back. Uh, I, I want justice. I don't want people in my situation to be treated like this with the, by these companies. The companies should learn that they just cannot get by this. The lawsuit seeks to have Varshney reinstated and awarded lost wages. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Huntsville, Alabama. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Biden administration says it will respond after three U.S. service members were killed in a drone attack in Jordan. Coming up in 15 minutes, how any U.S. military action in such a volatile reason, re- region has its own risks. What comes next? Coming up after 5 today here at 90.9 WBUR. Join Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy next Thursday, February 8th at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Nor about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Tonight, the Celtics and New Orleans Pelicans meet up for a 7.30 game at the Garden. Clouds keep on coming tonight, maybe producing some snow showers, not amounting to too much, though. Should fall down to about 20 degrees tonight. Then tomorrow, clouds return, maybe some bright spots. We shouldn't break out of the 20s. Wednesday turns milder, could nudge 40. Clouds lasting through the morning before the sunshine breaks through again around 40 degrees. 36 degrees now in Boston at 4.50.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. One of the biggest figure skating scandals in modern Olympic history is finally near an end. Today, a sports tribunal in Switzerland banned Russian skater Kamila Valieva from competition for four years. And the ruling will rearrange the medal standings from the 2022 Olympics in the team figure skating event. NPR's Brian Mann is following this. Hi there. Hi there, Ari. What do these sports officials say this Russian skater did wrong? So before Kamila Valieva, this rock star skater who was then just 15 years old, showed up in Beijing back in 2022, it turns out an earlier doping test had found she used a banned performance-enhancing chemical. Valieva was allowed to compete in Beijing anyway, and that decision threw into chaos and scandal a bunch of the results from those Winter Games. What's happened today is the Court of Arbitration for Sport has confirmed that Valieva's Olympic performances are disqualified. She's banned through the end of 2025. I spoke about this with Travis Tigert, who heads the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and he says this whole mess, Ari, highlights again just how corrupt Russia's sports industry is. Who do you have to blame? Not her, I don't think. But at the end of the day, this is the same Russia system. They're not compliant with the rules today. The system has failed athletes, including Valieva, to continue to allow them to hijack the world's largest event. With this ruling, of course, it is actually possible that Camila Valieva could return to compete again at the next Winter Olympics in 2026. And what does this mean for U.S. figure skaters who competed in Beijing? Man, these skaters have been waiting nearly two years for their medals. And a U.S. sports official today did sound confident that this would clear the way for Americans to finally be awarded the team figure skating gold medal. I spoke a little bit ago with Madison Hubble. She's a member of the U.S. team who says this is an exciting moment and she thinks it will finally bring her her first Olympic gold. Do you become a possibly an Olympic gold medalist? And that's a very great title to possess. But for all of our team, we were just anxious to see justice being done. Now, there is one more organization that has to weigh in on this. The International Skating Union is going to ultimately decide who gets which medals. They'll issue a statement tomorrow that appears to be a formality with Valieva disqualified. It seems pretty likely U.S. skaters will take gold, Japan silver and Canada bronze. And we're just six months away from the Summer Olympics in Paris. What does this case say about the risk of more controversy with Russia? Yeah, this is a big deal. Russian athletes are expected to compete in Paris as neutrals, not allowed to fly their national flag or play their national anthem. That's actually because of the fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Last week, Russia appealed that punishment to this same tribunal in Switzerland. But meanwhile, yeah, critics say there is a real danger that Russia's uh, doping program is so persistent it could skew results in Paris again and, and also in future Winter Games. One brighter note is that there is talk that in Paris, these U.S. figure skaters could finally get a really high-profile gold medal award ceremony. If that happens, it would come nearly two years after their performance in Beijing. NPR's Brian Mann, thank you. Thank you, Ari. Two of hip-hop's biggest stars are now going after each other. Overnight, Nicki Minaj released a rapid-fire response track. Her target was Megan Thee Stallion and the new single she dropped on Friday. So what prompted this falling out? Well, NPR Music's Sydney Madden is here to explain. Hey, Sydney. Hey, Sarah. So Megan and Nicki have worked together in the past, and at one time they seemed to support each other, but not so much lately, I gather. What's happening here? 
Yeah, they were one time co-collaborators and co-signers of each other. But in order to get into what's happening this weekend, we got to back up a little bit. We got to talk about everything that's coming out of Megan's single Hiss. So Megan, as an artist, her rise in the public eye and the rap game, it's happened very simultaneously as she's endured a lot of tribulations these last few years. She was shot in the foot in 2020 by Tory Lanez. She was ridiculed, slut-shamed, and doubted for being assaulted that way. And she went through a very public trial. And she dealt with a lot of fallout even as a victim of that incident. And so the single hiss that she dropped on Friday was basically a response to everything she's been through in the last couple of years. And she's airing out everybody, including Nikki. So on the track, she throws a subliminal diss at Nikki's husband. And you can hear there, she says, they mad at Megan's law. Yeah, what's that mean? Yeah, Megan knew everyone would go do their Googles to find out what that means. And it's a federal law requiring law enforcement to make info about registered sex offenders available to the public. And it was clear that this was a shot at Nikki's husband, Kenneth Petty, because he is a registered sex offender. And he was actually on house arrest last year for failing to register as one. So even though she didn't say Nikki's name in the track, it was clear that she was talking about Nikki and her family. Hmm. So how did Nicki Minaj respond to all of this? From there, it clearly got personal for Nicki. Nicki spent the entire weekend responding on social media and dropping hints that she'd be releasing a response record to this. And then at midnight, I mean, technically Monday morning, this song Bigfoot drops and the whole track is about Meg. The biggest diss on the song is that Nikki made fun of the fact that Meg was shot in 2020, not believing that Megan was shot in the first place. Kylie kicked you out and made you stumble to the car. Bob, I need a good alcohol bar. Well, man, wait, that was the bar. Like a bodybuilder, I keep raising the bar. You get shot with no scar. So, sort of casting doubt on her whole story. Exactly. Bringing us back to 2020, 2021, when a lot of people publicly ridiculed and disbelieved Megan in the public eye. So, Sydney, how is this fight between Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion, how is it different from other rap beefs that you've seen? There's a couple different variables at play here. First, we should say that this is a very active beef and there's still more songs and more disses and more jabs to come from this. But hip hop is a competition. It's one of the cornerstones of rap and Nicki as a fierce competitor, we can just say right now that Bigfoot is not her best work. But more importantly, in the age of social media toxicity, a lot of rap beefs are purported and sometimes false, but that they kind of spiral out of control based on how the fan bases mobilize around this information or misinformation. Nikki's fans, they're called barbs in the past and actively right now they are doxing people, which means their personal information is being leaked online in a way that can put them in danger. It's just something that's happening online that is now way too casual of an occurrence. In the past, people have leaked where people's kids go to school, photos of their children, and it's all in the name of a few between two celebrities that they don't actually know. So rap beef can definitely be exciting. It can move the culture, but not when they move to putting real life people, the celebrities and the fans included, in danger. That's NPR Music's Sydney Madden. Thanks for your time, Sydney. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From BritBox with Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, a new original drama following the rise of a Hollywood icon. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at J-I-T-A-S-A dot com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, 35 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds keep coming tonight, maybe producing some snow showers, but not amounting to too much, if anything, on the ground. Temperatures all the way down to about 20 tonight, with a gusty wind making it feel cooler than 20. And tomorrow, clouds return, maybe some bright spots around. Shouldn't break out of the 20s. For Wednesday, could make it all the way to 40 degrees. Clouds through the morning on Wednesday. Then the sunshine should break through in the afternoon, right about 40 degrees once again. 35 now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.59. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A drone strike in Jordan yesterday killed three U.S. service members and wounded dozens more. The White House has pledged to respond. We'll do that on our schedule, in our time, and we'll do it in the manner of the president's choosing. It's Monday, January 29th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. That story coming up. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Israeli radio is airing messages for hostages held in Gaza after some released hostages said they listened to the radio while they were in captivity. She said that was one of the most important things for her while she was in captivity, keeping her strong. Palestinian radio is also broadcasting messages for detainees in Israel. The commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service fills us in on this year's tax filing season. Also, Taylor Swift's cultural impact on the NFL. It's 501 News Headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Details are emerging about the three U.S. service members killed in a drone strike in Jordan. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Grant Blankenship reports all three were Georgian natives, serving with the Army Reserve 718th Engineer Company based at Fort Moore. The Department of Defense says Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Brianna Moffat, and Specialist Kennedy Saunders were killed in the attack. Saunders, 24, was from Ware County, some 200 miles southeast of Fort Moore. Scott Moy is the Ware County manager. Had no idea that one of the ones that lost her life was um, one of our own. She actually graduated with my youngest daughter. Moy says he quickly pinned a proclamation to lower flags to half staff. It was a way for us recognizing our own from her home county. Moy says the flags will remain lowered, in the words of the proclamation, until the sun sets on the day of her interment. 
For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. In a letter to a U.S. senator, a top intelligence chief confirmed the U.S. government purchases some commercial data tracking American Internet activity. The official denied Americans' data is being acquired intentionally, though. NPR's Jen McLaughlin is more. After former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden leaked documents about government surveillance in 2013, it led to a major debate about privacy and security. The U.S. government said at the time that any collection of Americans' data was incidental, though some of it was used in intelligence operations. The revelation led to reforms. But now, the NSA says it purchases commercial data about American Internet activity from companies like data brokers, though never from phones known to be in the United States. The disclosure comes in a letter to Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, a fierce privacy advocate. Given a recent legal order that data brokers must get informed consent before selling Americans' data, NSA's programs will likely continue to be scrutinized. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. The Federal Reserve's interest rate setting body meets this week with the Fed Chair Jerome Powell going into the two-day meeting in a better position than he might have hoped. Inflation has been nudging down closer to the Fed's 2% target. It makes it likely the Fed will hold the line on interest rate hikes. It's officially the first day of tax filing season. Today, the day people can begin submitting their federal tax returns, where it can be stressful, especially for first-time filers. IRS Commissioner Denny Werfel says the agency itself is trying to make things easier. IRS.gov has been updated with new tools for taxpayers, and our call and walk-in centers are fully staffed with trained assisters ready to help those who call or who want face-to-face help. Filing online is a better way for many people to go. For most taxpayers, the deadline to file is April 15th. Stocks gained ground today ahead of the Federal Reserve Board meeting. The Dow up 224 points to 38,333. The Nasdaq rose 172 points. The S&P 500 gained 36 points today. You're listening to NPR. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. The city of Boston will give some of the opioid settlement funds it's receiving back to families who suffered a death in the crisis. Here's WBUR's Martha Biebinger. Boston plans to use $250,000 this year to help families with funeral, legal, or child care expenses related to an overdose death. That's just 4% of the city's first-year settlement payments from opioid manufacturers and distributors. But Boston Public Health Commissioner Dr. Bizola Ojikutu says it's an important first step. To acknowledge grief and harms that have been caused by this opioid crisis and to so many families who have lost loved ones. Ojikutu says the city will hire an independent organization to develop eligibility criteria and review applications and hopes to distribute the first funds by early summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. There may be signs of progress in ending the teachers' strike in Newton. The teachers' union says today its negotiating team delivered a counterproposal on a contract deal to the school committee. The union says if the committee approves it, classes could resume as soon as tomorrow, but there's no guarantee it'll be approved. Students have been out of class for eight days because of the strike. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The union faces a fine of $50,000 a day as the strike continues. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's optimistic that the MBTA is on a pathway toward being entirely fare-free. The city of Boston has been running three fare-free bus routes for the last two years. It's been paid for with pandemic relief money, but that funding is set to run out next month. Mayor Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston today that she wants buses to be the focus of any fare-free efforts. The money you have to put in to collect the fares is significant, and the percentage of what you get back when you are putting in the resources for inspectors to check the fares or the other boxes and machinery and this and that 
it is not a great return on that in terms of bus fares. Governor Healy included funding for a pilot program to give reduced fares to low-income riders in her budget last week, but that did not include funding for a free bus program. Tonight, the Cambridge City Council will consider a resolution that calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The resolution is a milder version of a similar measure that failed late last year. Last week, Somerville became the first city in the state to pass a ceasefire resolution. In the forecast, cold overnight tonight. <clears throat> the stiff wind temperatures right about 20 degrees. And for tomorrow, cloudy and cold, 27 for a high tomorrow. Wednesday should have clouds early, then some sunshine later, warming to about 40 degrees. 35 now in Boston at 507. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The Pentagon today released the names of the three American Army reservists killed over the weekend by a suicide drone. It slammed into their sleeping quarters at a remote desert base in Jordan. The dead are Sergeant William Rivers, who was 46, Specialist Kennedy Saunders, age 24, and Specialist Breonna Moffat, 23. More than 40 other U.S. troops were wounded, many with concussions and a few with more serious injuries. NPR's Tom Bowman joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Tom. Hello there. So what more do we know about how this might have happened? And Aren't there defenses against these kinds of attacks? Well, it appears the attack drone somehow evaded defenses. That's what the Pentagon said today. And there's an investigation, of course. You know, these uh, there are sophisticated defense systems that can track and shoot down a drone out of the sky. We see that often at these bases in Iraq and Syria and also Jordan. And I've seen these defenses also in Afghanistan. But we're told in this case, those operating the air defenses were somehow confused didn't realize this was an enemy drone because there were U.S. drones operating in the area. This was first reported by the Wall Street Journal today. Again, that's a working assumption, but again, there's an investigation. And I was talking with a retired senior officer with a lot of experience in the Middle East, and he told me he's never seen anything like this before. Hmm. So, so what do we know about the type of drone or where it might have come from? Who's responsible? Well, officials are saying it came from an umbrella group of Iranian-backed militias. It's called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq. And the group claimed responsibility in a statement posted to Telegram. The Pentagon is still trying to determine the type of drone and where it came from. Usually they're launched from Iraq. But again, they're still looking into that. President Biden has promised a response to this attack. What might that look like, Tom? What do we know about that? Well, we know what it won't look like. Administration officials have said they don't want to widen the conflict, go after Iran, which again is training, supporting and supplying these groups. We heard that from spokesman John Kirby, who said, you know, we don't want to go to war with Iran. You'll likely see harder strikes on these Iranian militias in Iraq, maybe harder than what we've seen in the past when U.S. strikes have hit militia leaders, facilities, missile sites. All we're hearing now from the administration is we'll respond at a time or place of our own choosing. Now, some Republicans want the U.S. to strike Iranian targets, also its leadership. Democrats aren't going that far and saying there'll likely be a military response from the U.S., but that should be done in a way to send a message to Iran, not airstrikes. His Democratic uh, Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. 
one of the things the administration is looking at is how do you send a message not just to these militia groups but to their Iranian backers uh, that, that we've got to stop this behavior, but do it in a way that doesn't empower the Iranian hardliners who actually want to start a wider regional war that drags in the United States. A wider regional war. That's what the U.S. wants to avoid. The U.S. hopes Israel will wrap up its war in Gaza so it can move on to some kind of a future Palestinian state, hopefully calm the region. But at this point, uh, Sarah, that is just hope. The violence is only widening. And not only with these Iranian-supported militias in Iraq and Syria, but of course, the Houthi militias in Yemen, another Iranian-supported group that's targeting U.S. warships uh, uh, in the Red Sea and also international shipping. This is not going to end anytime soon, it seems. That's NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. Thanks so much for your time, Tom. You're welcome. The last time we spoke with Danny Werfel, he had recently gotten a new job and $80 billion added to his budget. He's commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS was shrinking even as the U.S. population was growing. So the new money was part of a rebuilding project. Well, just in time for tax season, IRS commissioner Danny Werfel is here to update us on how the project's going. Good to have you back. Great to be here, Ari. Some of the money you got has gone to hiring people who are going to help taxpayers filing. Um, can you measure the difference that that has made so far? We can. I mean, we've hired, uh, with, with the new money under the Inflation Reduction Act, we've hired more than 5,000 new customer service representatives. That means that uh, we are now at a point where our call centers are fully staffed, our walk-in centers around the country are fully staffed, these same uh, people that are both answering the phones and meeting with taxpayers, they also uh, process paper returns that come in. Mm -hmm. So we're able to manage our paper inventory so much better. It's interesting that you mentioned paper inventory because I've been shocked to see images of millions of pieces of paper that the IRS is using to manage filings even in this day and age. Um, and the technology that there is in some cases dates back to the 1960s and 70s. Have there been upgrades to that as well? Absolutely. Look, I, I've seen the same pictures. Uh, it's a call to action for us. When we see uh, paper returns filling hallways and cafeterias as it was prior to the Inflation Reduction Act, we knew we had to end that. And there's two ways to do that. First, hiring enough people to review all of it. If coming in in paper, it still needs to be reviewed. And second, scanning all of those uh, paper forms before they leave our mailroom. And that's why with our new funding, we've been buying modern scanners, more efficient scanners to make sure that our hallways and our cafeterias don't have paper in them anymore. <laughs> You're describing an image in the Washington Post of the cafeteria at the IRS Center in Austin, Texas, in which the tables were just full of boxes of paper. Not to get too specific, but if you fly to Austin and go into that cafeteria, are there going to be boxes full of paper or are there going to be people eating lunch? There will be people eating lunch. Absolutely. That I can guarantee you. Another big way to end the era of paper filling our cafeterias and our hallways is to have people file electronically. Commissioner Werfel, let me ask about a new project that the IRS is piloting this year, which is a free electronic in-house direct filing system for tax returns, which would allow taxpayers to avoid paying a company like TurboTax or H&R Block for their tax prep software. They would just do it right through the IRS. This is now a limited trial in 12 states, uh, only for people with simple tax situations. 
What do you hope for the program's future? And, and can you say how the trial is going so far? So this story is an option. And one of the things we've heard from, from taxpayers, from Congress through the Inflation Reduction Act, through the administration, is a desire for an additional option. One in which you could file for free uh, with the IRS directly. The big tax preparation companies don't like this at all. An Intuit spokesperson called it a solution in search of a problem. What do you say to that criticism? I say we are on the side of taxpayers and want to build that menu of options to give taxpayers as many choices as possible that work for them. So from I'm always thinking about it through the lens of how do we best serve taxpayers? And different taxpayers come at it from different angles. Some, for example, don't have the resources to be able to hire an accountant. Some want to file on paper. We don't encourage it, but we're ready for it. Some want to file for free with a commercial software solution. They should do that. But what we're hearing is some want to file for free directly with us uh, electronically. And we want to meet taxpayers where they are. Let me ask about enforcement, because the point of investing money in the IRS is for the government to collect what it's owed. So is the budget that you've received actually returning more money in increased tax enforcement, especially on very wealthy people, which you've promised would be the focus of enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the Inflation Reduction Act has a very simple agenda. If you're middle or low income, you will see better service. If you're high wealth with a tax issue, you will see more scrutiny. So we are absolutely ramping up efforts to uh, figure out where we have wealthy filers. These are millionaires and billionaires, but also large corporations and complex partnerships who are increasingly shielding their income and not paying what they owe. We're already seeing some very powerful early results in our efforts that demonstrate that this investment in improving our enforcement on high wealth is paying off. What does powerful early results mean? Like, can you get specific? I absolutely can. So we, for example, created a high-risk list of 1,600 millionaires and billionaires who owe back taxes. And we've put in a laser-focused effort to collect that money. And the new resources under the Inflation Reduction Act help us to do that. And we're working our way through that list. In just several months, we've collected nearly $200 million in back taxes, and we're not even through the list yet. So that demonstrates to you how much money is out there that is owed to the IRS. People want to know that the IRS is doing its part so that everyone is paying what they owe, regardless of their income level. So whether you're wealthy or super wealthy, whether you can afford to hire an army of accountants and lawyers, the IRS will be equal to the task and invest in solutions and people and subject matter expertise to make sure we're identifying what is owed and getting that back for the rest of the taxpayers. Danny Werfel is commissioner of the IRS. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Ari.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes. The value of radio to hostages and detainees in Israel and Gaza. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The Dow rose six-tenths of a percent today on Wall Street. S&P was up three-quarters, and the Nasdaq rose one-and-a-tenth percent. Bedford-based iRobot is laying off about 31 percent of its workforce. That's about 350 people. Company founder Colin Angle has stepped down as CEO of the company. Today's announcement follows news that Amazon has called off its proposed acquisition of the Roomba vacuum maker. Regulators in Europe and the U.S. had concerns over the deal. iRobot lost 9% in trading today. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston, and Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer, daily swim lessons in heated pools, and A.C. for indoors. MaplewoodYearRound.com. Should be overcast overnight tonight, windy and cold down around 20 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-20s for a high, gray skies for the bulk of the day. Wednesday, sun should move in for the second part of the day. Temperatures move up to about 40 degrees. 35 degrees in Boston now. The time is 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The U.S. and more than a dozen other donors have now paused funding for the U.N. Agency that Aids Palestinians, or UNRWA. The U.N. says the agency could run out of money within weeks. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports that the U.N. has been facing allegations that some of its employees were involved in the October 7th attack on Israel. The U.N. says it's trying to be proactive after Israel handed over a dossier accusing 12 U.N. employees of direct involvement in the Hamas attack that sparked the latest war. Dozens more are alleged to be affiliated with Hamas. Some of these UNRWA employees are accused of moving hostages and weapons, and some were in Israel the day of the attack. All have been either fired, suspended, or killed in the conflict. U.N. spokesman Stéphane de Jaurique says the secretary general was hard by the accusations. But his message to donors, especially those who have suspended their contribution, is to at least guarantee the continuity of UNRWA's operations, as we have tens of thousands of dedicated staff working throughout the region. The dire needs of the desperate population they serve must be met. 
He says Secretary General Antonio Guterres will hold a meeting with donors Tuesday afternoon, trying to reassure them that the U.N. will hold to account anyone who took part in the October 7th attack. Former UNRWA spokesman Chris Gunnis says Palestinians in Gaza should not be punished for the actions of a few. And let's be clear, this is 12 bad apples in a staff of 13,000 people in Gaza. Many of them are actually disgusted that their colleagues did this. They want to get on and have the funds to continue with their life-saving humanitarian work. It's disproportionate, I think, this response by the donors. It's also punitive. UNRWA, he says, is running on empty. It needs money to buy food, fuel and supplies for two million Palestinians in Gaza, as well as for Palestinians in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan and the West Bank. Now that some 17 countries have suspended their payments, UNRWA could run out of funds next month. It will punish the women coming in with newborn babies for food and water. It will punish the children with 95% burns, gasping for water or whatever. It will punish the elderly, the sick, the dying. It's punitive and it must be reversed immediately. The most desperate people on our planet are being punished. The former UNRWA spokesman says the U.S. and other donors need to be clear about what they expect of the U.N. agency to have this aid restored. At the White House, spokesman John Kirby says a lot will depend on the U.N.'s investigation and what specific steps it takes. We understand that they are very, very dependent on donor contributions, and the United States has been the leading uh, donor for many, many years. Uh, we have suspended our, uh, uh, our uh, contributions to UNRWA pending the results of this investigation, all the more reason that as I said, this investigation be credible, transparent and thorough and frankly timely. Supporters of UNRWA see the agency as a force for stability in the Middle East. But Israel has long accused the U.N. agency of teaching hatred of Israel. And there are many critics of UNRWA in Washington, some of whom will be speaking at a congressional hearing Tuesday afternoon and advocating for an aid cutoff. But the Biden administration has been pushing hard to get more aid into Gaza. And for that, UNRWA is key. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Okay, we now know who's going to play the Super Bowl in a couple weeks. The San Francisco 49ers will face the Kansas City Chiefs in Las Vegas. Now, this is not going to be a conversation about the matchup, but rather about one megastar who might be there. Taylor Swift has attended most Chiefs games this season to cheer on her boyfriend, star tight end Travis Kelsey. That has had a huge impact on the NFL. The league had its highest regular season viewership among women since it began tracking in 2000. Research by the Apex Marketing Group says Swift's association with the NFL has added the equivalent of around $330 million in brand value to the Chiefs and the league. Nora Princiati is a staff writer for The Ringer and self-proclaimed Swifty. Thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. So glad to be here. People have been talking about the Swift-Kelsey relationship for months now, but yesterday the attention really seemed to ramp up. What did you see? Well, we saw, first of all, that the Chiefs win the AFC Championship game and earn their way until the biggest sporting event of the year. And Taylor Swift still managed to be one of the biggest storylines from that game, you know, despite not being on the field, mm -hmm. right? And whether you consider it sort of a sideshow or this thing that's really wonderful and has brought a lot of new viewers into the sport, it's it's a phenomenon that, you know, I've covered the NFL for a long time and I've followed Taylor Swift for a long time. 
I never imagined they would come together in this way. And she's not the first celebrity to date an NFL star. So why has this become such a phenomenon? Well, you know, part of it, I think, is just where she is in this real empirical phase of her career. She had the biggest tour of the summer, the the pop cultural event of the year, I would say, was the Eras Tour. Mm-hmm. And midway through the first big leg of it, she starts dating Travis Kelsey, who, you know, he might not have been a household name for most people, but he's one of the stars of the NFL, you know, the, the star tight end of this budding Kansas City dynasty. So you have these two elements of our, our last bits of monoculture sort of coming together, and it really <laughs> right. created this phenomenon. Well, I mentioned the economic boost that Taylor Swift has brought the league. Uh, Social media interest is way up. Sales of Chiefs merch are up. What does she mean to the NFL? I think that's a really, really interesting question because I think you see it in the numbers. You see it in the merchandise sales. I see it in, you know, in my group texts with a lot of friends who do not normally follow football. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're tuning into every game. They don't have suddenly hot takes about the Jets defensive line, but they know what's going on in a way that is different from before this started to happen. So I I think what it means for the NFL is a real presence of this kind of sort of hyper femininity Hmm. that's really rare in such a, you know, normally macho masculine environment. And the NFL for, for years and years has been trying to court women and court more women fans and, and, to be frank, they haven't always been very good at it. And they have sort of stumbled into this like hyper influencer who's yeah. who's doing a lot of that work for them really well. All right, just in our last 30 seconds, I gotta ask, will Taylor Swift even make the Super Bowl because she's got a show in Tokyo the night before? Yes, thanks to the international dateline. So she can leave the concert in Tokyo at like 11.30. And if she goes right to the airport, flies to LA or Reno or Las Vegas or something and then drives there, she should be able to be there actually by Saturday night. That is Nora Princiati doing the math. Staff writer for The Ringer and Swifty. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, recent winter storms in the West have failed to produce the snow that farmers and skiers rely on. That's stirring fears about climate change in economies dependent on snow. Also, a public high school teacher in Houston quietly keeps a library of her books in her classroom, books she's not supposed to have because of Texas state law. Her students say she's helping the books survive. Those stories coming up on WBUR. Celtics host the New Orleans Pelicans tonight at the Garden. Tip-off time is 7.30. Celtics have won seven of their last ten games. Lots of clouds overnight tonight. Maybe a few snow flurries, not amounting to much. For tomorrow, clouds return. Maybe a few bright spots. Temperatures in the mid-20s. It's 5.30.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with Tammy Wynn's nature and history-inspired paintings in a show the Globe calls stunningly successful. Closes soon. ICABoston.org. Many Israelis have been displaced from their homes since the Hamas attack on October 7th. Rabbis have been visiting them to listen. People who are so traumatized have a need to talk about what happened to them. What do the rabbis hear and how can they help on the next Morning Edition from NPR News? Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the House Homeland Security Committee is set to take up articles of impeachment tomorrow against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Deidre Walsh tells us the partisan tells us more about the partisan fight over enforcement at the southern border. The 20-page House GOP resolution outlines two charges against Secretary Mayorkas willfully refusing to comply with the law and breaching the public's trust. A DHS memo says the effort to oust the secretary is a distraction from vital national security priorities facing Congress. Mayorkas is part of bipartisan Senate talks about a bill to address the crisis at the border. If the House panel approves an impeachment resolution, House Speaker Mike Johnson says the full House could vote as soon as possible. But even if the House approves the charges, the Senate is unlikely to convict Mayorkas. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Black faith leaders are planning a peace march to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. As NPR's Kristen Wright tells us, there's a growing divide between President Biden and clergy members over the war. A coalition of multi-faith leaders will march from Philadelphia to Washington next month to urge Biden and Congress to cut weapons funding to Israel and increase humanitarian aid to Palestinians. Meanwhile, in a new article, the New York Times profiles several black clergy members who are pressuring Biden. Speaking to NPR's Morning Edition, the Reverend Leah Daughtry reflected on the growing death toll in Gaza. Daughtry is the national presiding prelate of the House of the Lord Churches. We as faith leaders have to be concerned about the moral toll of this war and what our authority is and what our responsibility is. Biden spoke at a Baptist church in South Carolina over the weekend, praising black churches. Kristen Wright, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A lawyer pushing for former President Donald Trump's name to be removed from the Massachusetts ballot is promising to appeal a key decision today. The case came before a single justice on the state's highest court. He denied the move to keep Trump off the ballot. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the request came from a group of eight voters. The voters had petitioned the State Ballot Law Commission, claiming Trump violated the Constitution when he engaged in the January 6th insurrection. The commission said it lacked jurisdiction over the matter, and today Supreme Judicial Court Justice Frank Gaziano agreed. He also noted that Trump is not yet the nominee, so the petition to keep him off the ballot comes too soon. Amy Carnavale, the chair of the state GOP, calls it the right decision. The decision as to who the nominee of the Republican Party should lie with the voters in Massachusetts. In his ruling, Justice Gaziano also said the U.S. Supreme Court, which is hearing a challenge of a Colorado ruling to keep Trump off the ballot there, could resolve the question in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
A state senator from Dorchester is concerned about the finances of the company that runs Kearney Hospital. Kearney is the only hospital in the neighborhood. The facility is run by Steward Healthcare. Steward says it is its unstable finances have put the fate of all nine hospitals it operates in Massachusetts in jeopardy. Senator Nick Collins says the state should consider a variety of measures to keep the hospitals open, particularly Kearney. It's an important community hospital that serves an underrepresented community and is an important employer, particularly in the Dorchester community. And I think it would be devastating if it were to close. So I think the state should be looking at taking uh, extraordinary action if that's what it requires. Senator Collins says the measures could include tax relief. Governor Maura Healy said last week the state will move to protect patients and hospital workers. The remains of a North Atlantic right whale have washed ashore on Martha's Vineyard. The whale was found today partially submerged in shallow water in Edgartown. The experts in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration are on site to evaluate what caused the whale to die. There are only about 350 North Atlantic right whales left in the world. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy. Heat pump water heater replacements, same day or next day services. Learn how you can heat smart this winter at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org summer. Should be cold tonight, down around 20 degrees. The wind should make it feel a lot chillier. Tomorrow, cloudy and cold, about 27 degrees for a high. 35 now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. One of the biggest sources of anguish for Israeli and Palestinian families in nearly four months of the Gaza war is the large number of hostages and prisoners taken by each side. Some were released early in the war, and there are talks now about releasing more. But there are still thousands of family members in the dark about the fate of their loved ones. So they're trying to reach them through the radio, as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports. Every morning, Israel's number one drive-time radio show dedicates a song to one of the Israeli hostages in Gaza. The anchor, Hadar Marks, says Chaim Perry is 79 years old. He and more than 200 Israelis were taken hostage on October 7th during Hamas's deadly ambush, the largest number of civilians taken captive in Israeli history. The anchor addresses this hostage and says... We will meet, and things will be good. She says, I hope you can hear this, and plays a song by one of his favorite singers. This is not just wishful thinking. About half of the hostages were released a couple months ago in an exchange for hundreds of Palestinian detainees, and some of them said their guards had let them listen to Israeli radio while they were held in Gaza. The distances here are short. Radio frequencies reach across borders. Here's an example. Hi, Gil Dickman, Tel Aviv. 
שבוע נפרדנו מכנרת גת, בת 68 מקיבוץ בארי. כנרת נרצחה בידי מחבלי החמאס שחדרו לבית שלה, וחטפו גם את הבת שלה, כרמל גת, ואת כלתה, ירדן רומן גת, שנעדרות עכשיו. כנרת הייתה אישה ומחנכת נפלאה, ואהבה יותר מהכל לשיר ולטייל. Gil Dickman recorded this message, which aired on Israeli public radio. He spoke about his aunt, who was killed on October 7th, and his two cousins, who were taken hostage. He told us that when one of his cousins was released, she told the family she had heard that broadcast in captivity. That's how she learned what had happened to her other relatives, and how she knew her family understood she was being held in Gaza. People tell you, if, uh, if she listens to you right now, what would you say, what would you want her to hear? And I always feel like, okay, no way she can hear me. But it turns out that thanks to the fact that radio is such an analog platform, it was possible. It's And the only Israeli channel of communication reaching some of the hostages. She said that that was one of the most important things for her while she was in captivity, keeping her strong, knowing that her husband and child are still alive, and that we fight for her. Some of the released hostages say they didn't have any access to a radio or TV in captivity. But the fact that some did has changed how Israeli radio is broadcasting now. Galei Tzahal, Israeli army radio, is the country's most listened to broadcaster. Every day it airs messages from Israelis to their relatives captive in Gaza. Turn the dial to Palestinian radio, and you'll hear something similar. Radio Ajial is based in the West Bank city of Ramallah. Every week, it broadcasts voice messages from Palestinians to their family members in Israeli jails. Here's a short voice message the radio station played. It's from 18-year-old Dima Ali. Her father, Alaeddin Ali, was taken away by Israeli soldiers five days into the war. She addresses her dad and says, everything at home is fine, university's good, don't worry about us. She has no idea if he's heard it. We have no connection to, to reach to him or to speak with him. Where's the human rights? Where's the, 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 the prisoner rights? Even the lawyer can't reach to him. In the past, Israel accused him of having ties to Hamas, which the family denies. During this war, Israel has detained thousands of Palestinians. More than 8,000 are jailed now. It's horrible after October 7th inside the Israeli prison. Radio Ajiel's editor-in-chief, Walid Nassar, says the station has been flooded with short voice messages since the start of the war because Israel has cut off the connection prisoners had to outside the prison walls. Palestinian prisoners are no longer allowed family visits. The Red Cross no longer gets access to deliver letters between families and prisoners. Lawyers are given minimal access to meet prisoners. Israel says the measures are to prevent prisoners from coordinating attacks from inside jail. Palestinian prisoner advocates call it a policy of revenge. So these messages are very crucial for the prisoners inside the prisons when they can't reach the outside um, communication. For Palestinian and Israeli families, the concern is not knowing about their loved ones in extreme and difficult conditions. Some Israeli hostages and Palestinian detainees have died while being held. There are growing allegations of physical abuse against Palestinians in Israeli jails and even sexual abuse against Israelis in Hamas captivity. The head of Israeli army radio 
Danny Zaken. I, I can't do any comparison between these two populations, these two groups, hostages and prisoner terrorists. It's totally different. Here it's civilians mostly, hostages, and the Palestinian prisoners, most of them, are terrorists. Israel says it's arrested Hamas activists since the war began. Many detainees are held without charge, a tactic criticized by human rights groups. Israel says it's needed to prevent future attacks. And in war against terror, you have to do some measures. Among them is lots of arrests. That's part of the war. After saying that, I can say that, of course, as every family that have her, the, the one that she loves, in jail, uh, and, and I can understand what they're doing. Since the war began, Israeli prison authorities say they've been confiscating radios from Palestinian prisoners. So who knows how many radios are left today for Palestinian detainees in Israel or for Israeli hostages in Gaza. But Israeli and Palestinian radio stations are still broadcasting these messages. If anything, to give the families a platform to speak. And because you never know who's listening. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, from Ramallah and Tel Aviv. Venezuela's leading opposition candidate says she's staying in this year's presidential race despite a ruling by the country's high court upholding a ban on her candidacy. Some people seeking fair and free elections in Venezuela want the U.S. to reinstate sanctions that the Biden administration lifted. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports. Speaking to supporters in Caracas today, Maria Corina Machado defiantly rejected the ruling by Venezuela's Supreme Tribunal of Justice last week. It's not a sentence nor an arbitrary ruling, she says. Esto se llama delincuencia judicial. It is called judicial criminality, she says, and she has no plans to abandon her run for president against current leader Nicolás Maduro. She didn't specify her next steps. Machado won a presidential primary organized by opponents following a deal signed by Maduro officials promising to hold free and fair elections this year. The U.S. eased some sanctions on Venezuela. Today, U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says Venezuela must comply. They need to make the right decisions here and allow opposition members to run for office and release the political prisoners. He says Maduro has until April, according to the deal. He declined to preview options the U.S. is considering. Carrie Kahn, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Barely a week ago, the Rockies and the Northwest were pummeled with snowstorms. This winter started unusually dry, and now it's been raining at high altitudes. NPR's Kirk Ziegler tells us how the whiplash winter is affecting snow-dependent economies. At the Sun Valley Resort in central Idaho, the parking lot with its melting pools of slush looks more like April than January. Yeah, it's <laughs> raining in the parking lot. Visiting from New York, Deanne Eagle is not sure what skis to bring up because most of the steeper bowls she likes aren't open. She grew up skiing in Tahoe. And once it started to snow, it snowed all winter. And then it didn't rain and never rained in the winter. Now, dreaded winter rain is common from California to here in Idaho. It'll get cold and then it rains and then it melts everything. So even if you've made snow, it's gone. And it's just kind of heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, Eagle says, because winters like this make her worry about the future of skiing. And this is Sun Valley, widely held to be the birthplace of American skiing, home to the first ski resort on the continent and the first chairlift in the world. It's gay. It's exciting. It's something different under the sun. Sun Valley. 
In this famous enclave, climate anxiety is now gripping visitors and locals alike this winter. Writer and lifelong skier Julie Weston says the resort's relatively low altitude has always left it vulnerable. No, they were not thinking about global warming, but the first year it opened, which was Christmas 1936, there was no snow and they had to bus people farther up the canyon. But now Weston says it's normal over Christmas to ski thin white ribbons of artificial snow around brown forests. Already this winter, a popular cross-country ski race was canceled over in Yellowstone. Warm temperatures also canceled sled dog races in Montana and Oregon and in Idaho this past weekend. The ski industry has tried to shield itself lately by improving the hugely energy-intensive process of making snow and also buying more carbon credits. The family that owns Sun Valley recently divested from their long ties with Sinclair Oil and knew this season are more energy-efficient lifts like this one. Now, the Sun Valley Resort declined an interview request while they've been here, citing, among other things, their first-ever sustainability manager has only been on the job for a few months. Overall, Auden Schendler says the industry is way behind on climate action. He's been head of sustainability at the Aspen Skiing Company for 25 years. Look around us. Look at what's happening. You know, another record hot year. Emissions continue to climb. What we're doing to address climate change from the corporate sector and beyond, it's not working. A new report this month from Aspen says resorts should stop focusing on greening their own operations and instead push Congress for a carbon tax, including on all the jets that fly into the resorts, and work to unseat climate deniers. Schendler says this winter is what resorts should be planning for. Which is weird and extreme weather, and also the science says you're more likely to see multiple dry years in a row instead of just an average one. That's a scary prospect for ski towns where almost everyone and everything is dependent on tourism dollars. I don't mind sitting in the rain. But As the drizzle continued in Sun Valley, elevation 5,800 feet, local climate activist and science teacher Scott Runkle said there's a lot more at stake for the West than just skiing if this winter doesn't turn around. The hills are going to be clear of snow much earlier than ever. The reservoirs are going to never going to fill up and are going to drain earlier. And then the fire season is going to come. Smoke, maybe even more dreaded than winter rain. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Sun Valley. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Monday evening here at 90.9 WBUR. As remote work becomes commonplace, what does that mean for people whose job it is to keep office spaces open, such as office admins and security guards? Our story is coming up in business news starting at 6.30. Also, shipping holdups in the Panama and Suez canals and their downstream effects. Celtics host the New Orleans Pelicans tonight at the Garden, 7.30 tip-off time. Celts have won seven of their last 10 games. And former Red Sox manager Jimmy Williams has died. Williams led the team from 1997 to 2001. He was named American League Manager of the Year in 1999. That was the year the Sox made it to the American League Championship Series. The team calls him a true staple and leader of the Red Sox. It's 549. Winter in Boston is no joke. Sometimes the city is covered by a beautiful blanket of snow. And sometimes the streets and sidewalks are treacherous because of thin layers of ice. We have a few tips from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston to help you survive and thrive in winter. First things first, bundle up when you're outside shoveling or salting. 
a warm coat with a hat and gloves, insulated boots, thick socks, and lightweight long johns can go a long way. Now for the fun. Slap on ice skates at the Boston Common Frog Pond or other neighborhood rinks, but stay away from any body of water that might not be fully frozen. Or grab a sled and hit the hills. You'll find companions in just about any neighborhood park from the Emerald Necklace to Ronan Park to Bunker Hill. One, two, three. For more on enjoying winter in Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The fight over banned books keeps raging. Last week, a U.S. appeals court blocked a law that would have required school library books to have ratings for sexual content. Texas is one of the most aggressive book banning states. More than 1,400 titles were removed from Texas school and library shelves over the past two years, according to Penn America. As a result, some teachers and students have been building underground libraries. And Pierre's Netta Ulubi reports. Three teenagers are giggling at a coffee shop in Texas about what it takes to get their hands on books. Well, these are special books. <laughs> We're in the far, far suburbs of Houston at a coffee shop so nondescript it looks like an ugly Starbucks knockoff. These three 17-year-old seniors brought me here to talk about a secret bookshelf in their teacher's classroom. It's really low-key, very undercover. How undercover? She tells like a select few of students who she feels might need a book to get them into reading. These students have a lot in common besides attending the same public schools. We're all minorities. And they're all queer. The secret bookshelf, they say, is the one place where they can easily find books that give them characters they can immediately relate to. Just to see like Latinos, LGBTQ, that's that's not something like you really see in our community, or it's not very well represented at all. Well, I am a young black lesbian, and I don't meet people like myself in my day-to-day life either. So reading these characters in these books, it really gives me hope. You will not hear the names of these students. NPR has confirmed their identities, but they worry about the consequences of going public with their secret classroom bookshelf. We don't want to jeopardize our teacher in any way, or the bookshelf, or the district, or the school. Or themselves. Sharing such books in a Texas public school has felt dangerous for the past few years. These students do not want to draw the ire of antagonistic activists, or put their teacher at risk. She is a longtime public school employee, a Texas native, and like her state, her secret bookshelf is enormous. At this point, I may have about maybe 600 books. They spill from two big bookshelves in her classroom into a bunch of plastic crates. I'll never have enough bookshelves. This teacher started her secret library a couple of years ago, after a Texas lawmaker named Matt Krause sent public schools a list of 850 books he wanted banned because he felt they would make students uncomfortable about race and sex. That made this teacher furious. The books that make you uncomfortable are the books that make you think. And isn't that what school's supposed to do? What's supposed to make you think? So she swung into action. First, she called friends. I was like, y'all, I have this project. I want his impact to be that it's actually expanding kids' access to people that are different for them. Then she talked to her students. She gave one of them a job. Here's that student remembering the assignment. Can you go through the list? Can you see like what books you'd recommend for us to add to the library? And then she gave me her card to buy them. Wait a minute. She literally was like, here are the books we're not supposed to have. Go get them. Yeah, it was a lot of gay books. I remember that. This student has recently graduated. 
In high school, he came out as a transgender man to his parents. I wouldn't call them supportive, so I had to do a lot of sneaking around. Including sneaking books featuring romances between queer characters. Some on the bookshelf are about contemporary high school students now. Some, says the teacher, are queer classics. Yes, I throw James Baldwin at them whenever I can. Giovanni's Room is really popular. That book is so so wonderful. It's about travel and his identity and confusion. It's so wonderful. I reached out to former Texas lawmaker Matt Krause for comment repeatedly and got no response. He's currently running for county commissioner in Fort Worth. Here are some students talking about the books he's been trying to ban they've read from the secret bookshelf. There was 1984 by George Orwell. Love that book. I love dystopian novels. My Heart Underwater by L'Oreal Flores Fantazzo. It was banned strongly because of the LGBTQ main character. And here's another student. Some of the books that I've read are books like Hood Feminism, Poet X, Gabby, A Girl in Pieces, like books that have really helped me come to sense with feminism. How I grew up, I just see a lot of, like, especially in my community, a lot of women being talked down upon, and those books it was really nice to read and be educated on. To be clear, this public school with a secret bookshelf in Texas, it's not in a fancy part of town. Many students there do not have parents who can drop everything to get their kids' books about being queer. Here's the teacher. Oh, I have taught kids whose parents have never set foot in a classroom. They are from small towns in other countries, and their parents were farmers. I've had kids whose names were not spelled correctly because their parents were illiterate. You know, a lot of the kids have parents that did not go to college. A high amount of kids who are on free and reduced lunch. A spokesperson for the school district where this teacher works said they prefer not to comment on the issue. The transgender student worries about how much worse it's getting in Texas for teachers who want to help students like him. Because of the way the laws are going for trans people especially, it could become illegal to the point where it could be assumed that she's grooming kids. And that would be terrible because that's not what she's doing. At all. A Texas teacher was fired last year for assigning a book to her students. It was a graphic novel about Anne Frank that showed Anne having a romantic daydream about another girl. There are other documented cases in Texas of teachers leaving jobs because of pressure over challenged books. One local Freedom to Read activist described the atmosphere as chilling. That's what makes the underground bookshelf started by this teacher remarkable, says Casey Meehan of the free speech advocacy group PEN America. Yes, that is in fact incredible, and it's really courageous. It's not wrong for students to be worried, Meehan says, given how much things have escalated in Texas in recent years. Parents are taking books from schools and bringing them to police and sheriff's offices and accusing librarians and educators of providing sexually explicit materials to students. It does make me nervous. It does make me nervous. I mean, this is absolutely silly that I'm not free to talk about books without giving my name and worrying about repercussions because history has taught us this lesson over and over again. The teacher who runs the secret bookshelf of banned books. You know, I intend for this library to just keep growing. And at some point, she hopes it will no longer have to be a secret. I do believe that book banning is going to go away. I think it's kind of the last grasp of people trying to maintain control because they know it's slipping.
That's what I tell myself anyway. Late last year, the Texas State Board of Education passed a policy prohibiting what it calls, quote, sexually explicit, pervasively vulgar, or educationally unsuitable books in public schools. Critics say that language is dangerously vague. And although parts of that policy were just blocked by federal court, it was not overturned. And that language was left untouched. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Learn more at Viking.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid, Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Should fall to about 20 degrees overnight tonight, but feel even colder with the wind chill factor. Tomorrow should stay cloudy and cold, about 27 degrees for a high. Wednesday, gray skies to start. Then we could see some sunshine by the afternoon, warming to about 40 degrees. Tomorrow on WBUR, in a feud over border policy, Texas is not allowing federal agents entry to a heavily traveled corridor for migrants illegally entering the U.S. State, you're here tomorrow morning. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A group called the Islamic Resistance to Iraq has claimed responsibility for the drone attack that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan yesterday. Officials say the drone may have been mistaken for a U.S. drone and let it pass unchallenged. Coming up, who is this group? Today is Monday, January 29th, and this is All Things Considered. Also ahead, the effects of a Supreme Court decision on border security are playing out in Texas. And as they are, the way some Republican lawmakers and conservative leaders talk about immigrants has become increasingly hostile. And childbirth in a war zone. Thousands of women in Gaza have given birth as the fighting between Gaza and Israel rages on between Hamas and Israel. Some women make it to the hospital, but there isn't much room for them to stay long. Mothers are leaving hours after having a serious cesarean operation with a newborn baby back to the streets in many cases. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House is declining to comment about how it plans to respond to an attack on an American military base on Sunday that left three U.S. soldiers dead. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports it appears an Iranian-backed militant group is responsible for the drone strike. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says President Biden continues to weigh the options before him and will respond accordingly. We'll do that on our schedule, in our time. And we'll do it in the manner of the president's choosing as commander in chief. We'll also do it fully cognizant of the fact that these groups, backed by Tehran, have just taken the lives of American troops. They were Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Saunders, and Specialist Brianna Moffitt. Kirby says they were working on a vital mission in the region to counter ISIS, a mission that is unrelated to the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Israeli officials in a document have laid out allegations against a dozen U.N. employees who they say took part in the Hamas attack against Israel in October. The attack by Hamas resulted in 1,200 deaths and more than 200 people being taken hostage in Israel. The allegations against staffers with the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees prompted Western countries to freeze funding for the body. The U.N. says it fired nine of the 12 accused workers. Two are reportedly dead. The last is still being identified. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court appears closer to recognizing for the first time abortion is a right enshrined in the state constitution. Ben Wasserstein of member station WITF reports the decision comes amid legislative efforts in Pennsylvania to add protections for access to abortion. The court has sent a case concerning whether Medicaid should cover abortion back to a lower court, signaling that Pennsylvania's constitution protects abortion access under its Equal Rights Amendment. Signe Espinoza is executive director of Planned Parenthood Pennsylvania Advocates. This is a huge step in the right direction. We know that the rights of Pennsylvanians are due to all Pennsylvanians, not just those that are wealthy enough to afford them. We know that there are a lot of barriers to abortion care and being able to afford one and to have Medicaid cover has been a huge barrier. Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act, a 1982 law that bars Medicaid from covering abortion, remains in effect for now. For NPR News, I'm Ben Wasserstein in Harrisburg. E-commerce giant Amazon says it is calling off its planned $1.7 billion purchase of robotic vacuum company iRobot, citing regulatory hurdles. Proposed deal was facing scrutiny on both sides of the Atlantic. With the termination of the deal, the maker of Roomba Vacuum says it will lay off around 31 percent of its staff and its CEO will leave. Amazon will pay iRobot a nearly $940 million or $94 million breakup fee. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says an overflow shelter in Boston could open to migrants as soon as Wednesday. The state has chosen a recreational center in Roxbury for the shelter. The space will temporarily house the region's ballooning homeless and migrant populations. As WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, the mayor says the state's move to convert the space is concerning to her and to residents. Mayor Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston that community feedback to convert the Melnia ACAS recreational complex into an overflow shelter was clear. For the first community where this is being proposed to be Roxbury, a community that over so many decades has faced disinvestment, redlining, disproportionate outcomes, it's very painful and it's painfully familiar, I think is what we heard most of all from residents. However, Wu says the rec center is under the jurisdiction of the state. She added this moment feels like an inflection point, one where the city is already under strain. 
A quarter of all spots within city shelters are now filled by newly arrived migrants. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. U.S. Congressman Seth Moulton is warning the U.S. to show restraint after a drone attack in Jordan. The attack over the weekend killed three American military members and wounded 34 others. The White House says the attack was carried out by Iran-backed militant groups. Moulton told CNN this afternoon the president is working hard to avoid entering into a broader war in the Middle East, and those calling for diplomatic measures to end are wrong. We need to send decisive messages to Iran that this kind of militant behavior is not going to be acceptable. Uh, The Biden administration will do that. But to say that we should never have any diplomacy, especially with the elements in the Middle East that are allied to our interests, uh, that's ridiculous. All three soldiers killed were from Georgia. The MBTA and three former T police officers accused in the beating of a homeless man have reached a court settlement with the man. The incident happened at the Ashmont T station in 2018. The dollar amount wasn't disclosed. The T calls the settlement a fair and reasonable resolution to what it labeled an unfortunate incident. The officer accused of beating the man pleaded guilty to criminal charges. Two of the former officers were charged with trying to cover up the crime, but those charges were dismissed by the Suffolk County DA. One of them is still facing federal charges. Worcester police say residents with certain vehicles should check their cars for security flaws. Law enforcement reports some three dozen thefts and break-ins of Kias and Hyundais since November. Worcester Police Lieutenant Sean Murtha says residents who have those cars should take extra precautions. One thing they can do is see if they are eligible for the uh, uh, the recall. Also, just taking extra precautions like parking in well-lit areas if possible. Uh, you can install a kill switch in the car, obviously locking windows and doors and not leaving the car running. Police connect to the issue to a social media challenge that highlights the car's apparent security issues. In the forecast overnight tonight, more clouds producing some snow showers, not amounting to much, though, should fall to about 20 degrees overnight. And tomorrow, clouds return. Some bright spots. We shouldn't break out of the 20s tomorrow. In Boston, now 34 degrees at 6.08. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The fight between Texas and the federal government at the border is about more than just razor wire. On its face, the argument is over whether Border Patrol officials can cut down concertina wire that Texas put up. The Supreme Court says yes, the feds do have that authority. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he'll defy that order. But this is also a fight over who enforces immigration and how America talks about migrants. NPR immigration correspondent Jasmine Garst is with us. Hi there. Hi. There's been so much back and forth on the Texas-Mexico border. Can you just quickly bring us up to speed? Sure. So in 2021, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ramps up immigration enforcement. It's called Operation Lone Star. He deploys the National Guard, puts these floating buoys in the Rio Grande, razor wire on its banks. And this is often deadly. Migrants have died because of this. So the Biden administration tells Texas, you have to allow Border Patrol to cut the wire. And Texas says no. This argument went up to the Supreme Court, who last week uh, ruled that Border Patrol can, in fact, intervene. The latest is that over the weekend, Texas doubled down and said no. 
not only will we not cut the wire, we're going to put more in. Does Texas have any legal standing to do that after the Supreme Court ruled against them? Well, so this debate is about much more than wire. It's about who enforces immigration law and how. So the National Guard is ultimately part of the U.S. military, overseen by the U.S. president as commander-in-chief. But except in very specific situations where the president takes federal control, the National Guard in each state takes orders from its state governor. And Governor Greg Abbott has invoked something called the so-called invasion clause in the U.S. Constitution. Abbott says immigration is like a foreign public enemy invasion, which Biden is doing nothing about. And Texas has the right to defend itself. Those are such loaded words that we've also heard from presidential candidates. Invasion, foreign, public enemy. I mean, this is intense rhetoric. There's absolutely a very dehumanizing rhetoric. Uh, As we get deeper into the election year, it's been getting more vitriolic. Here's former President Donald Trump back in December. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world, they're coming into our country. He said this, poisoning the blood of America multiple times. And here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis when he was a candidate earlier in the campaign cycle talking about how he would deal with immigration. I don't see how you can just let them do that and and carve through a wall on sovereign U.S. territory with a backpack full of drugs. And so we we, of, of course you use deadly force. You know, what's striking about this is that it's not factual. You heard DeSantis talking about drug smuggling. NPR has done a lot of reporting about this. And pretty much all fentanyl found on the border has been smuggled through legal points of entry brought in by U.S. citizens. Some of this rhetoric is stuff that we heard starting in the Trump campaign of 2016 and continuing through his four years as president. Would you say what we're hearing today is different? There's this word I see thrown around a lot lately, which is unprecedented. This kind of talk is not unprecedented. We heard this during the last administration, and frankly, it can be traced back all the way to the 1830s, to anti-Irish movements, anti-Catholic, later anti-Italian. The list goes on and on, you know? And that leads to another point, which is that it's true. Apprehensions at the southwest border are at an all-time high, It's also true that the border didn't used to be policed in the same way. And according to the Cato Institute, in the last decade, the immigrant population has had the slowest growth since the 1960s. NPR's Jasmine Garst. Thank you. Thank you. Delivered into hell. That is how Tess Ingram of the UN Children's Fund, or UNICEF, describes the world newborn babies are meeting in Gaza. Ingram recently spent a week observing the conditions at two hospitals in Gaza. The care that people are able to receive is incredibly limited. The hospitals are so very crowded because there's just so many people in need, both from injuries from the war, but also from pre-existing conditions that need to continue to receive treatment. And then, of course, women giving birth and, and the care that their newborn babies need. UNICEF estimates some 20,000 babies have been born in Gaza since Israel began its offensive there in response to the October 7th Hamas attacks. Only about a third of the territory's hospitals are still partially functioning, 
And Ingram says pregnant women have trouble accessing even the most basic medical services. I spoke to, to one woman, her name was Mashael, and she was living in the middle area of Gaza. And when her house was, was hit, her husband was buried under the rubble for several days and her baby stopped moving um, inside of her. And she said that she wasn't able to get a scan or, or any sort of assessment of, of the baby's condition. When I met her, it had been a month after that terrible incident, and she confirmed her husband was, was fortunately rescued and, and he was OK, but she was sure that their baby was, was dead and she was waiting for, for medical care. So these are the sorts of things that, that women are experiencing even before they get to a hospital. And then once they're there, for example, anaesthetic is not something that, that's easily available, let alone um, other more usual medications that, that women might receive. And I'm sorry, the woman you just described, you said her husband was ultimately rescued, but but what about the baby? So she was waiting um, when I met her at the Emirati Hospital to see a doctor, but the baby hadn't moved in about a month. And she said that she was sure that the baby was dead. And we spoke for a long time and, and she was obviously distraught by the whole situation. It was her second pregnancy, but she said to me, you know, I think it's best that a baby isn't born into this nightmare. It was probably meant to be, which was just heartbreaking. For those who are able to make it to a hospital and give birth there in Gaza, what happens afterward? I mean, how long, for example, are they able to stay in the hospital after the birth? Not long at all. So at the moment, because of the sheer you know, lack of staff compared to the enormous needs, women are, are having caesareans and then getting... Uh, a short amount of time, maybe an hour or two in a bed before being put in a chair because they need that bed for somebody else and then being discharged within about three hours unless there is there's some kind of urgent need for them to, to stay in the hospital. So mothers are, are leaving hours after having a, a serious caesarean operation with a newborn baby back to the streets in many cases. We're talking about displaced women, um, returning to makeshift shelters of, of tarpaulins and, and blanket, blankets on the streets of Gaza where they not only are at threat because of the bombardments, but they also don't have basic things like clean water or food or even clothes for the baby. I met one mother who was taking her newborn baby back to their tent and the baby didn't have any clothes. We know that nutrition and water are a problem. The WHO says that more than 90% of Gaza is facing crisis levels of hunger. What does that mean for breastfeeding mothers, for, for newborns and, and small babies? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's it's something that UNICEF is, is trying to prevent and, and to respond to. Um, you can imagine that as a as a pregnant woman, you want to make sure that you're eating properly to keep yourself healthy, but also to make sure that the baby is healthy. And so many of the pregnant women that I met and, and I spoke to, were that was their greatest concern, was ensuring that they had enough of those nutrients to ensure a healthy pregnancy. But food is incredibly limited. And, and most people at the moment are remi- relying on very basic things like bread or um, tins of of like canned vegetables. So mums were concerned about that. And UNICEF is is there in Gaza trying to to help them. We're providing um, micronutrient supplements, uh, things like iron and folate to try and keep them healthy. And then for newborn babies, we're providing things like um, ready-to-use infant formula that 
can be used by mums who aren't able to breastfeed because maybe their nutrition is low or or they've been traumatised by what they've been through. And so they can use this formula that doesn't have to be mixed with, with water because of the concerns of safe water. So these are some of the things that we're trying to do. But the amount of aid that's been able to get in is just not the same as the need. And so we need to be able to get more aid in to do a better job of, of responding to the needs of, of pregnant women and children in Gaza. We've learned in recent days that several nations, including the United States, have suspended funding to one of the key United Nations agencies involved in providing aid to people in Gaza. That's the agency known as UNRWA. And that decision came after Israel presented evidence alleging that a dozen UNRWA employees were involved in the October 7th attacks. How much is that development harming efforts to help infants and new mothers in Gaza? The situation was already um, at breaking point. When I was in, in Gaza, I could just see just how exhausted people are by more than 100 days of, of war and nothing justifies the, the horrific events on, on the 7th of October. And these are extremely serious uh, allegations which are being investigated. But ultimately, I think what we need to keep in front of mind is what happens to the children of Gaza when they're already at this breaking point when the major UN agency in Gaza is not able to, to fully function. So I think that's the thing that, that we at UNICEF are thinking about at the moment and making sure that the needs of the children in Gaza can continue to be met. That's Tess Ingram with UNICEF. Tess, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. The Dow rose six cents of a percent today. S&P was up three quarters of a percent and the Nasdaq rose one and a tenth percent. Boston planning officials are trying again to redevelop an old chain making factory in the Charlestown Navy Yard. The factory shut down in 1973. Nine years ago, a developer began to work to turn the site into a hotel, but that never happened. City planning officials tell the Boston Business Journal they will restart the process with community meetings this spring. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo and the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday harvardartmuseums.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. Cloudy, windy, and cold tonight, 20 degrees at the lowest. Tomorrow should rise to the mid-20s with gray skies for the bulk of the day. Wednesday, sunshine finally moves in, temperatures moving up to about 40. It's 621. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, 
committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A group calling itself the Islamic Resistance in Iraq has taken responsibility for a drone attack that killed three U.S. service members on a base in Jordan near the Syrian border. The same group has claimed responsibility for most of the attacks on the U.S. military in Iraq and Syria since the war in Gaza began three months ago. To talk more about this group, NPR's Jane Araf is with us from Amman, Jordan. Hi, Jane. Hi, Ari. What is the Islamic resistance in Iraq, and and who are they resisting? Well, the second part of that question is a lot easier to answer than the first part. Their stated goal is to attack U.S. and Israeli targets, to drive U.S. forces out of Iraq and Syria, and to support the militant Palestinian group Hamas in the war in Gaza. Essentially, as regarding what it is, it's a coalition of groups. It's not new, but kind of rebranded, all with the same purpose, and almost all believed to be funded, armed, and in some cases directed by Iran. Iran denies this, saying the militias are autonomous. Can you tell us about some of those groups that make up this collective? Yeah, they generally don't disclose which militias are part of it, but one of the biggest, Katab Hezbollah, Hezbollah Brigades, made clear recently that it was involved in attacks claimed by the resistance. The U.S. in November targeted Hezbollah headquarters near Baghdad in retaliation, an attack that's prompted the Iraqi government to ask U.S. forces to leave the country. And worth noting, there's some history there. The founder of Kitab Hezbollah was an Iraqi militia leader known as Abu Mahdi al-Mahandas. He was also a senior Iraqi government security figure. The U.S. killed him in a drone strike along with Iranian General Qasem Soleimani four years ago in Baghdad, which is even more reason for the group's determination to drive out U.S. forces. Tell us more about the origins of these groups and where they come from. Well, we really have to go back to the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. And in getting rid of dictator Saddam Hussein and disbanding all security forces, all Iraqi security forces, the U.S. paved the way with the security vacuum for the rise of al-Qaeda, the militant Sunni group, and Iran-backed militias that stepped in to protect Iraqi Shias and fill that gap. Iraq has had been an enemy of Iran, but after 2003, Iraqi political, religious, and militia leaders in exile in Iran were free to come back. And they did. Under the political system set up by the U.S., the prime minister has traditionally been Shia, and many of them are backed by Iran. So fast forward to 2014 when ISIS captured parts of Iraq and Syria, and the Shia militias were essential to fighting them. But when ISIS was defeated in Syria in 2019 with the help of the U.S., the militias stayed. And now a lot of them are officially part of Iraqi security forces. That seems like an unusual arrangement. Practically speaking, what does it mean? Well, it is as odd as it sounds, particularly when it comes to the U.S. Iraq is officially an ally of the U.S., which was responsible for a lot of the military training of Iraqi forces. The two countries fight ISIS together still. 
But inside the Iraqi security forces, the government on, on the government payroll are militia brigades that were incorporated into official forces in 2019. So officially, Ari, all security forces answer to the commander-in-chief, Iraq's prime minister. But in reality, some of the most powerful groups answer more to Iran. NPR's Jane Araf, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. It's been one week since a major storm hit San Diego, causing flash flooding that inundated homes and swept cars off the streets. From member station KPBS, Andrew Bowen reports the disaster has highlighted how climate change is hitting low-income communities of color the hardest. Monica Garcia rummages through piles of soiled belongings that she and her neighbors have taken out of their homes and placed on the sidewalk. There's closet drawers, headboards, there's actually all the clothing hangers with clothes. Last Monday was San Diego's rainiest day in January since 1850. Some areas got three inches in just a few hours. The floods came fast, overwhelming the city's stormwater infrastructure. Garcia's 90-year-old mother had to be evacuated to the neighbor's roof. This house has been in the family for 45 years. It's been a source of stability and safety for all the kids and grandkids. And when they had financial troubles that they couldn't pay rent, this was the home where they can come to get back on their feet. And now we have nothing because we have no flood insurance and because we've had so many hardships and and health issues as well. This is a total loss. Garcia's neighborhood, just southeast of downtown, is predominantly Latino and low-income. Generations ago, racist housing policies kept people of color out of San Diego's white neighborhoods. A century later, that segregation persists. The infrastructure in these older communities have long-needed investment. Julie Corrales is an organizer with the Environmental Health Coalition. The San Diego nonprofit recently secured $22 million from the state of California to help vulnerable communities prepare for climate change. But the focus has been on extreme heat. Corrales admits the risk of flooding in sunny San Diego hadn't been on their radar. We're going to experience unpredictable weather and these types of rains, and we haven't been focusing on that. So I think now we're thinking, okay, we need to start building around that. How do we urgently reinforce the infrastructure. I don't think that we realized urgency before. City officials said the rainfall was so intense it would have overwhelmed even the strongest stormwater system. And San Diego's was already underfunded by $1.6 billion. I think this is a great example of why we have to be equitable in our investment in climate resiliency. Sean Ilo Rivera is the San Diego City Council president. He says historic budget inequities have made infrastructure shortfalls especially bad in low-income communities. I think that the council that we have now, in partnership with our mayor, has been very honest about the needs of the system. And that means providing additional resources to communities that deserve them because they were left out of the equation for so, so long. Climate change is going to play out in ways that we don't fully know at this point. Gregory Jenkins is a professor of meteorology and atmospheric science at Penn State University. He says when disaster strikes, low-income households can be permanently displaced. You don't know what that does to the fabric and structure of that neighborhood in terms of relationships. 
or you know how someone's job is now 30 miles away or we don't know all those things so there are narratives that are happening at the human scale that aren't really reported back on monica garcia's street volunteers at a taco stand are preparing lunch for residents garcia says she's touched by the support but there's more they need so that's why i'm asking also the federal government to give us the aid you have money for wars you have money to help other countries, and we're struggling as well. Garcia doesn't know what comes next for her family. The morning after the storm, a real estate agent came knocking with an offer to buy the home for cash. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Bowen in San Diego. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics host the New Orleans Pelicans tonight at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. Celtics have won seven of their last 10 games. Tomorrow on WBUR, in a feud over border policy, Texas is not allowing federal agents entry to a heavily traveled corridor for migrants who are illegally entering the U.S. Rising border tensions and more tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Start your day here. Lots of clouds overnight tonight. Lows about 20 degrees. Then for tomorrow, should be cloudy pretty much all day long, with high temperatures only in the mid-20s. It's 630.